Welcome to our Harvard Macy Institute podcast. Connecting our Harvard Macy community and discussing health professions, education topics and literature. So welcome to our next Harvard Macy Institute podcast. I'm Victoria Brazel and today I want to quote you a sentence. Increased global attention to diversity, equity and inclusion necessitates inclusive teaching in health professions education. Now, I'm quoting the first sentence of the article we're going to discuss today, 12 Tips for Inclusive Teaching, and this is a paper by Jeremy Ameo, Cheryl Heron, Nathan Spell, Holly Gooding, and published last year in MedEd Published. And I'm joined by the first author, Jeremy Ameo. How are you, Jeremy? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, well, I've got to give you a proper billing here. Now, you're an assistant professor and the director of ultrasound education at the Emory University School of Medicine. Uh, you're also a physician assistant in the Division of Critical Care Medicine at Emory Healthcare. And for our non-US-based uh, audience, that is in Georgia, USA. Uh, well, it sounds like you've had a interesting path to thinking about inclusive teaching. Tell me a little bit about what you just do in your day job. So my day job, like many others, I wear a lot of hats, but primarily I am a teacher and I teach a lot of the basic sciences at Emory. I love to teach physiology and biochemistry, and then I run the pulmonary and endocrine blocks as well. And, uh, you know, I'm a critical care guy trained through and through. So you're going to find me with coffee in my hand and an ultrasound probe in the other. And so we're always trying to find ways to uh, scan something new in the classroom. And in my spare time, when I'm not teaching, I'll pick up a, a shift in the ICU or two and try to keep up those, uh, those clinical skills with the ICU team. Ah, that's a lovely context for us to think about the ways in which you get to practice this inclusive teaching. And you and I have had paths that have crossed a little bit through our critical care connections. And just so we can give a little shout out to it, you're also a fellow podcaster. I love podcasting. I uh, We run this podcast called Poemcast. And, um, you know, my first knowledge of you, Dr. Brazel, came from uh, the foam world with Smack. And uh, I was able to attend Smack Berlin. And man, uh, just a group of people who um, are, are, are models and, uh, and paragons in the field of medicine and teaching. And so a uh, shout out back to you for sort of paving the way for people like me trying to learn uh, about spreading the word, so to speak, of inclusive education. Mm. Oh, well, thank you for the appreciation. But I agree, both of us, I think, learned a lot from being involved in that uh, community and community of practice. All right, well, let's get into it. So I suppose that some definitions here might be useful. Um, what do we mean when we say this word inclusive teaching in health professions education? Yeah, and uh, the way it was explained to me that I really appreciate is that if diversity is ensuring that everybody has a seat at the table, Inclusion is ensuring that everybody who's at that table is not only served, but is also enjoying the meal. And so it's, it's a step further. It's not just inviting a diverse group of students to be in the classroom. It's creating a learning environment where we believe that every single student, regardless of their background, regardless of their potential, regardless of their skills, regardless of any noun that you could put in that space, uh, we believe that they're they're deserving of the opportunity to fulfill their own learning potential. So in short, it's education for everyone. Mm. And that is a really nice analogy, I think, because as you say, just getting to the table isn't quite enough. 
and also maybe underlined some other concepts around equity and equality and other ideas that we have in this space as well. And this is probably a bit of a broad question, but um, that's all very nice to say, but we, it invites us to think, well, where are our gaps now? Why aren't people either all at the table or enjoying the meal? Um, do you want to maybe reflect on that for a minute? Where are these gaps? And they're probably yawning chasms, in fact, more than little gaps, and why this matters. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm going to talk about one tiny segment of diversity, and then I, I want to broaden it out a, a little bit. So in, in the physician assistant world, which is my purview, um, of certified practicing PAs that we have in the United States, over 80% of these individuals identify as white, while 3.3% identify as black or African American. 3.3% versus 80%. And why is that? A lot of people might think to themselves that underrepresented minorities are less likely to apply to PA school, and that's true. Statistically, our data shows that underrepresented minorities are less likely to be admitted to PA school as well. But the most concerning statistic that we look at in this area is that once admitted, underrepresented minorities are less likely to graduate from PA school. And that's a huge concern, even though there has been an increased attention to making the PA student body more diverse, the effort to include those individuals once admitted has lagged far behind. And then to broaden this out, this is just a form of diversity that we measure and commonly you know, talk about. This has left out forms of diversity like introversion, extroversion, disability, uh, uh, learning preferences, and so on and so forth. So in short, if you have felt excluded, this is nothing new to you. You know why inclusion is important. The feeling of inclusion, the feeling of belonging is important, just like it's important for a child not to eat alone at the cafeteria lunch table. <laughs> You're rich with the analogies here, Jeremy. I'm loving <laughs> I'm it. Trying my, I'm a dad. I'm trying my best. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, and that really helps us frame it up, doesn't it? Because this is not just not fair. It's also inefficient. It's also uh, not a good idea if you're one of these institutions and you're going to the efforts to uh, actually have people there. If you're not then making good on that, that is a poor return on investment for uh, not just the individuals, but the institutions who are hoping to train them and a poor return on investment for the community. So I think that really helps us underline that the reasons why are not just about being fair to those who have been underrepresented in the past, uh, albeit that is a good reason. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to add to that, to shift the focus away from individuals who have experienced exclusion of groups who are traditionally included by default, um, their learning is, is better when they get to participate in a diverse learning environment. Their learning is, is better because they're ultimately going to be practicing medicine in a complex and multiracial, diverse society. And so the more that we can morph our educational environments to mimic what we are going to see in the real world, the more representation we'll see at every level. Mm, absolutely. All right, well, let's get into the paper now. So this is a 12 tips, and that would be familiar to many of us involved in health professions education. Uh, you do start with, and we've already made allusion to some of this, but you start with an overview about having an uh, inclusive mindset. So maybe you could expand on that a little bit. Yeah, and in a sentence, an inclusive mindset is one that asks, who is being left out? 
And I think it's best to keep it simple like that. Because what I don't want people to feel when they read this article is the sense that they are they're less than, that they're not doing. Uh, I'd be willing to argue that most people who are listening to this podcast, by default, want to improve. That's who they are. And so I want to encourage that if you are are diving into inclusion as a practice, uh, it doesn't need to be a complete overhaul of everything that you've ever done. A tiny switch of asking who is being left out as you move into your teaching endeavors is at the heart of this whole article. Mm. Yeah, I think that's important. And uh, merely having that reflective approach is probably useful because as you say, there's probably some very good things people are doing and to make sure that we know what they are so that they're consistently applied across our teaching and others teaching is probably at least as useful as um, uh, finding where the gaps are. So in your 12 tips, you've organized them around themes and the first theme is around general principles. And uh, your tip one is often where a lot of uh, this work starts, which is starting by recognizing our biases in teaching and learning, and I would argue, and in life. And again, I'm going to quote from the paper here because I think this is quite important. The population of medical learners is increasingly diverse, and not only with regard to race, ethnicity, gender, and sexual orientation, but also under-recognized traits like introversion, extroversion, organizational habits, preferred learning styles, and reading speed. And uh, there's no doubt that many of us have probably been quite biased as teachers when we start to broaden out that uh, definition related to biases. Um, How do we go about doing that? Because almost by definition, we're a bit blind to it. How do we start to open our eyes to our biases? Yeah, it's 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 tough. I. I don't think there's a single correct answer to this question, and everybody's going to reflect differently. And I think that collaboration and requesting feedback from trusted colleagues is definitely important. But as an individual endeavor, um, you know, things like implicit bias deserve their their own sort of podcasts, and I, I don't think we're going to be able to cover the depth and breadth here alone. And so for the sake of our discussion, I'm going to consider a bias as a way of viewing and doing. And, you know, simply sometimes the way that we view and do things in the world excludes people. And I'd like to share an example of this. So I was a couple of years back, I was rewatching some of my lectures that I delivered. And there's a whole big camera in the back of the classroom. And I'm standing at the lectern pacing throughout the room because that's just my style. And I realized that I only walked and gave attention to the right side of the room. And it, you know, it wasn't that I never looked at the left side, but my, by far, my preference was to focus on the right side. And does that make me an inherent hateful person? Do I hate people who sit on the left side? No, of course not. But my way of viewing and doing things in the classroom excluded a whole half of the room. And so by simply reflecting on, hey, uh, how am I teaching in the classroom? Where am I walking? What am I doing? What are my habits? How do I choose uh, who who I pick on to ask a question? Um, It's just something to to consider and and reflect on. And that's kind of a good example too, isn't it? Because you wonder what the students do in response to that. They may or may not have explicitly noticed it. 
but they may have implicitly reacted to it and the ones who really like being called upon and making eye contact with you might all find themselves sitting on the right side. Uh, so it, this, is a, this is a dyadic situation, isn't it? Uh, it's not just about the behaviours of the teachers here. It is also about the behaviours of the learners who bring their own biases, uh, implicit or otherwise, don't they? Yeah, and, that, and that's the challenge is we ultimately want to produce learners who are also reflective of their own biases. And something that I have been increasingly aware of is, is trying to highlight my own worldviews in terms of uh, when I'm teaching a certain topic, making sure I give them background of these are the patients that I often see, this is where I trained, this is how I approach this problem, this is my own bias, my own worldview. Um, the other thing that's been really helpful is something called the Upstate Bias Checklist, um, which is easily Googleable if you look for it. But it's a simple checklist to go through some of our own learning material <clears throat> to see if we favor um, or, or have biases within the presentation itself. Uh, it could be that we include, you know, uh, race and gender information when it's not actually relevant. It could be that we include only one type of skin or one type of disorder, so on and so forth. But it's a very easy checklist to go through our own works to recognize what biases are there. So in summary, I would say it's being self-reflective and recognizing how our ways of viewing and doing our behavior, the teaching strategies that we choose, the language that we use, the conversations that we have, so on and so forth. How do those things exclude people? Is there a small way that we could change and diversify what we're doing to include more people? And can we get some help from a checklist or a colleague to uh, sort of open up our blind spots and our biases that we're not noticing. And this just allows us to step back. It doesn't have to be a prison. The checklist doesn't have to be something that uh, dictates our teaching, but it can be something that aids us to reflect on it. All right, so the next tip, uh, and I think this is important for all teaching, isn't it? Embrace a growth mindset. Skills are built, not born. And uh, you give the example that actually came to mind even before I looked in your a paragraph there. Girls are no good at maths. Uh, and and I think these fixed mindsets are often shared by both learners and teachers, aren't they? And some of them, we've done a lot of work. I mean, the girls and maths thing, a lot of work has been done over a lot of years, but uh, there's no doubt many others where we have these preset ideas about people being good at stuff and not being able to build them. And absolutely. And, and I think that chasm is even larger in the PA world. So just context for our listeners, most physician assistants come to PA school with an abundance of medical experience already. We uh, at Emory University require at least 2,000 hours of prior patient care experience, so about one year of full-time work. Uh, but most of our students are coming with you know, up to 10, 10 30, 40,000, some as nurses, some as flight medics, so on and so forth. When you sit a uh, student who has 2,000.00 hours as a CNA next to a student who has been a flight medic for 15 years, there is a discrete difference in the perception of skill set between the flight medic and the CNA, the nurse, um, uh, the certified nursing assistant. And what I think is so interesting is, um, is they say, well, well, they're inherently good at IVs. They're good at EKGs. They're good at ABGs. I'm not good at those things. And the conversation that follows is always hilarious because you say, how many ABGs have you interpreted? And they say, none. 
And then you say, how many ABGs have you interpreted, Flight Medic? And they say, oh, hundreds. And what we fail to recognize is that the difference between somebody who is skilled and unskilled is typically repetitions and deliberate practice. And as educators, it's our job to counteract those negative self-perceptions that sometimes only come out as simple, offhanded comments like, I'm no good at this, or this might be a dumb question. And so in very small ways, we can encourage students to have a growth mindset. But even in the way that we structure our goals and what is success, uh, for example, how do you reward a positive answer that somebody spurts off in the middle of a lecture? How do you respond to an incorrect answer? Do you say something like, good try, or do you say something like, no? Do you exclusively give positive praise to the people who are simply correct, or do you praise progress? Yeah, and that is, that's interesting. I've been doing some learning in the field of writing with a very esteemed colleague, and I answered a question, and I got it wrong. And uh, she didn't say good try. <laughs> she just said, here's the right answer. <laughs> but it's interesting because it goes to the and, – and, you know, you, you start with, oh, my God, I'm no good at sentence structure. And you find yourself in this place as well. So what we do with learners is uh, really important because this can completely dissuade them from participation in the future. It doesn't mean we have to find a way for them to be right, but it means we have to uh, praise process um, as well as outcome. Interesting. And this is probably very relevant to the next tip, which is about embracing failure. And uh, I'm going to take a little bit of a deep dive in this because I understand this is the focus of your PhD work. And if I'm to paraphrase some of the correspondence we've had, you know, we hear all the time about learning from failure, about growth mindsets and, and learning to manage failure. And everyone says, give it a good try, you'll learn something. Uh, but as you say, unfortunately, our approach to teaching and learning confronts us a bit with this paradox. And that is that our teaching and our assessment still privilege being correct over learning something. So give me the story. How did you get so interested in this? Yeah, ideally, the health professional should always be learning. We should always be in a state of becoming. And this is why we call it practice. And of course, there should be milestones and checkpoints along the way where we certify that somebody has competency, because that is important that we have graduates who are competent to practice medicine within their domain. But once somebody fails, we know that failure is so heavily stigmatized in our educational institutions. So health professions learners who experience failure, what do they feel following that failure event? They report shame, they report guilt, and they report a decrease in self-efficacy, the belief that through effort they could improve. This is growth mindset. So when somebody fails, growth mindset goes down, shame goes up, guilt goes up. And and why do they report this? Well, learners report, you know, some of the own feelings that they have within themselves, but they also concerningly report uh, the interactions that they have with peers following failure and the institutional response to failure, what we would call remediation. And so where my interest came about is this is this paradox where we sit people down and tell them, hey, failure does not define you. That's not where it stops. We want you to keep trying. There's always tomorrow. And yet we say, hey, if you get below a 2.8 grade point average, you might be dismissed from the program. And so trying to figure out the balance between that and what that dichotomy does to a student's self-efficacy, which is going to determine how they pick themselves up after failure. It was just very intriguing and uh, a, a big 
chasm, to use your phrasing, of, uh, of an area that we could improve. Mm, very interesting. And I don't think it's a field we think enough about. Uh, and I'm going to go a little bit further here because as you evolve this and you're planning your PhD, one of the things that piqued my interest was a plan to use something that you called structured failure exercises uh, to help educate about skills like help-seeking, collaboration, self-reflection, and recalibration. And so I think there's two parts to that. One is I think you're identifying that there are skills that we can have that help us learn from failure, uh, but also that um, experiential learning might be a way for us to uh, engender those skills. Sounds fascinating. I am excited about it because in science, we celebrate the researchers who persist through failure and uncertainty to make that discovery. In medicine, when clinicians fail, we rarely put them on the, the chopping block that we would say. Uh, but instead, we encourage them to engage in recalibration and help-seeking behaviors to collaborate with other professionals. And so there's all these competencies that we want people to have in the face of failure that the hidden curriculum that we have in our academic structures really just don't offer the opportunity to support. And so what I mean by structured failure experiences, I, I, I mean a simulation where there will never be a good outcome. No matter what you choose, the patient will have a bad outcome. And you have students uh, redo the simulation and redo the simulation with different iterations and medications and so on and so forth, but nothing will ever pan out. And I think it will be interesting to ask students, how do you feel about this failure? What does it make you want to do? How could we best support you through this failure and sort of build uh, not only an understanding of their self-efficacy beliefs after a failure event, but also their self-regulatory behaviors, how we can create psychological safety in the face of failure, where a student leaves that failure event, not feeling like the failure defined them, but it taught them something. And I think at the end of the day, if we can unify all these findings together, we can inform uh, the theory of self-regulated learning, learning, but ultimately, how do we remediate students who experience failure in a way that doesn't just pull them back, but gives them the edification and self-efficacy skills to move forward. Yeah, I think that's important because it's not just what we do as an institution, but as you say, how we as individuals will approach our failures in the future. And it sounds like it's a, both a conceptual shift, but also then having the skills to enable that. Well, look out for more on that from Jeremy. Ah. Can, can I uh, can I share one sto other story of how I became of interested course. in failure? Um, so the other probably larger story that got me interested in failure is I failed my freshman year of high school. And somebody listening to this episode is hearing me say I didn't do so well. No, 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 like I did not pass a single class in my freshman year of high school. I failed. I failed bad. There's a lot of things that led to that. But what I very much remember is this feeling of shame and guilt. I remember seeing all of my friends moving on. I remember feeling like an other, like an outsider, like I brought it upon myself and there was no way forward. And that feeling uh, now that I'm on the other side of it was exclusion. I felt excluded. And yeah, I, I had a role in that. It was my responsibility that I didn't pass my coursework. But the most notable thing that happened after that is, is my aunt, who is herself an educator. She helped me take ownership of my failure. 
And she homeschooled me year round over the next three years. I ended up graduating on time. And besides the input and mentorship that she gave to me, the most important thing is that she separated the experience of failure from who I was and what I was capable of. And in my mind, that is the the heart of inclusion, the belief that everybody, regardless of where they came from, can grow and improve. That is a very interesting story. And I think we can't quite leave it until you tell us a little bit more about your aunt. Uh, <laughs> what do you think enabled her to do that? Because although you say she was an educator herself, sure. you and I know that that's certainly not uniform behavior amongst educators. Uh, sure. What do you think enabled her to do that? There was there was a lot of love involved. And, you know, what's what's going to enable anybody to go significantly out of their way to improve the life of another person? Well, we hope it would be love. We hope it would be care. We hope it would be all the reasons that we go into medicine in the first place. But it really was she saw through me as a person. And I think she saw me today. She saw an individual who would have an impact she saw an individual who would try to shake up and make waves in whatever environment he went into. And I'm trying. And, um, you know, I, I hope that she was right. But ultimately, it was, it was love and it was a belief that I could do better. Hmm. Well, that is an excellent story. Thank you so much. All right. Well, let's get back to these tips then. And uh, I'm going to go through the others that are in this just general principles that you talk about. Uh, tip number four is about creating structure. Uh, because as I'm quoting again from the paper, a growing body of research has shown that low structure leaves learners behind, some disproportionately. Tip five is about making personal connections and honoring individuals. And I guess that relates to your story as well. Uh, you know, recognizing that uh, knowing people is going to allow us to form some relationships that will probably uh, inform and improve our teaching, uh, including sharing our own personal experiences, values or beliefs that you've mentioned before. And then the other last tip in this section is about providing multiple forms of teachings and methods of assessment, uh, including some things in many cases where you might be able to allow anonymous participation if you feel like those biases are going to be at play for uh, some of the answering um, softwares. Uh, yeah, so this is quite a lot of stuff that sounds like good advice for all teaching. Is there particular things you'd like to single out for us to think about that uh, we might have for this inclusive teaching focus? Yeah, and I honestly think it's best to say that good pedagogy is inherently inclusive. And while I haven't thought about every iteration of this claim, I'd be willing to say on air that inclusive pedagogy is also probably inherently good. And um, so, yeah, a lot of times when you see these tips for inclusion, it is just generally good teaching strategies. My favorite, uh, I'm going to pick two out of these three, is, is the personal connections piece. And this is all about honoring learners as the individuals that they are. And really, when you simplify education into just building relationships with people working towards a common goal. It becomes a lot easier and the power structures are changed. It's no longer, you know, me on a podium declaring the truth to a group of people, but it is a group of people who are collaborating with each other to learn and improve. And for me, that has made it easier to do things like learn people's names, 
um, and honor their honor and discover their preferred pronouns and even share pieces of yourself. And it doesn't need to be an inordinate amount of information. But if you're having a crummy day, your learners want to know that. You know, if you're feeling a little bit off, your learners would love to support you through that and have understanding if your lecture isn't 100%. And it really is, if you just focus on the relationship that you're building in teaching, it becomes a lot easier to include because in our relationships, it's very simple to tell when somebody doesn't feel like a part of the group. The the last piece that I want to talk about is multimodal teaching and assessment. And this is the idea that exclusively relying on a teach on a single teaching modality uh, is going to exclude some students. So take cold calling, for example. Uh, students who don't want to be called out, who might be more introverted, who or who just don't feel safe in the lecture environment to share their opinion, will be excluded if that's the only way that you allow students to demonstrate their mastery of the material. But if you also allow an anonymous participation option, now we've sort of changed the game and allowed everybody a way to access without making it uh, so that the people who do want to still participate in cold calling are, are not necessarily excluded. Having multiple ways of engagement is better for everybody. Yes, and just creating that match uh, is important, isn't it? And, and again, it can be, feel quite overwhelming, whereas maybe it just takes a minute or two of thoughtfulness to take the next step. Right, so then your paper uh, takes a shift to thinking about going deep on the context of teaching and how this um, 12 tips might now manifest. And the second theme is about inclusive teaching principles specific to didactic teaching. And you've got a couple of tips in here, um, which we've already sort of made allusion to. The first is to select inclusive teaching materials and just talking about something that has... Um, received a bit of airtime, I'd say, ensuring that case examples, images and other materials uh, represent a diversity amongst our patient population uh, and amongst the learners and uh, and yet isn't a stereotyping or tokenistic sort of we'll suddenly have people of, you know, 10 different races in 10 different examples because we have to be inclusive, uh, but also talking about just uh, nuts and bolts of things with accessibility, having proper audio and visual uh, and then similarly, and you've sort of made allusion to this, is also thinking about the input from all students, recognising that uh, power and hierarchy and other uh, realities are at play in any group of people. Uh, is there anything you wanted to dive into here? Um, the thing I'm interested in is this uh, promoting diversity of representation without getting people tied up in knots of uh, virtue signalling to use a <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that's an interesting topic. And as a person who writes a lot of questions for multiple choice exams or you know open ended answer exams and slides, I'm constantly thinking about you know do I need to include this information? And so one of the things that I have done in the past year to sort of transform my test writing is I just stopped including demographic information unless it was directly relevant to the case. Um, and, and, you know, so, uh, sometimes that means age, sometimes that means gender, sexual orientation, race. Um, but when that information is not directly pertinent to what I'm asking, I, I find that trying to generate all, all these examples of fictional characters will tend toward my biases without adding anything to the assessment itself. One of the things that I really want to emphasize about selecting inclusive teaching materials and techniques 
If you're standing in front of a room, please don't ask if you need to use a microphone. Uh, just use it. Because as an illustration, if you have somebody in the back or within the class who has a hearing impairment, all you've done by asking if you need to use a microphone is you've singled out the one person who might have a hearing impairment who now has to identify themselves and make themselves uncomfortable or decide to not say anything and struggle through the lecture. The other thing that I think would be really helpful is about closed captioning on PowerPoint, which is the predominant way that people are presenting information. It's a simple one-click button, um, and I can put it in our in our show notes. I can send it to you afterwards. But it's a simple one-click button, and you have a live transcription of everything that your computer microphone picks up in the room. And it's been so helpful, particularly for our virtual lectures or lectures where I'm wearing a mask and you can't see my mouth to have words written in real time on closed captioning. And most of my students have no qualms with it being there, even if they choose to not use it. Mm, that's a very good practical tip. And yes, we will make sure we include this and some of your other references uh, in our show notes there. All right, so then we the next theme is about inclusive teaching in the clinical environment. And the tips, I'll quote here, orient the learner and patient to the clinical teaching environment. Sounds like a good idea. Uh, tip 10, acknowledge bias in the clinical environment. And I feel like this is particularly problematic because I think this is where it can all go wrong. Uh, often there's good practice in our educational institutions. People are thoughtful and intentional. Learning is the focus. Uh, but then they go to the clinical practice and then we hit this wall of healthcare culture. It's not always as much as we would like. Uh, and just as an example, I've, I've heard these direct quotes. Yeah, sure, he makes a few sexist jokes, but he's a good doctor. Uh, I've obviously chosen a gender issue there, but I think we see these biases at play and they are not as uh, thoughtfully interpreted for learners as we might see in an educational environment. Uh, thoughts on that? Bias is, a ch is challenging, and I think most people would agree that when we experience bias, whether it's a microaggression or a macroaggression, that experience is isolating, and it's even more isolating when you're the only person experiencing and acknowledging that it occurred. One of the really challenging things in the clinical environment is the sources from which bias can originate. It can be a member of the team. It could be a patient. There is such a diverse array of, of sources of bias and, and microaggressions. And I think that's what makes it even more socially challenging to navigate. One of the faculty that we have at our institution, her name's Dr. Kimberly, Kimberly Manning. Um, she's at Grady Doctor on Twitter. She has this amazing talk that's called From Bystander to Upstander, and she's given it at a number of grand rounds. She most recently gave it to our PA student cohort, but it's a fantastic talk. Uh, if you Google From Bystander to Upstander, or we can throw it in the show notes here, it's an amazing talk to give you tools so that if you saw something, you would say something. And one of the tips that she talks about in this Bystander to Upstander talk is that when you see bias in the live environment, uh, for example, when I was a PA student, I had a, a patient, I was with a white student on the rotation, and then it was myself, who's a black student. A patient told me she didn't want me in the room, but had no issue with my, my colleagues staying and, and being present. When that happened, there was a nurse in the room who looked me in the eye and made a face of discomfort. And although small, the acknowledgement that what had just happened was wrong 
was so meaningful to me. And so Dr. Manning, in her Bystander to Upstander talk, says that the first step, if you have no idea what to do when you witness bias, micro or macro aggressions in the clinical environment, display discomfort. Could be facial expression, could be eyebrows now that we're all wearing masks, eye contact. It could even be just pulling somebody aside afterwards and letting them know that what happened wasn't okay. But the simple idea of displaying discomfort can be so meaningful to somebody who would otherwise be isolated or ignored or just carry on with the day. But she has so many other good tips and tricks in that talk. I'm not giving it justice here. So please do, uh, if this is something you struggle with, listen to that. Yeah. And I think that's really important because I think we do need multiple things between the space of then taking big action and standing out and taking a big risk. And I'm just thinking about your white colleague there. Those of us who are white can't even imagine that this thing happens. And so probably get just as caught by surprise or perhaps even more caught by surprise and then don't have those tools that I think this uh, this talk might help us a little bit with. And displaying discomfort is a good first start. And I think that might be reassuring to people as well. Just to say, I saw what you saw and it wasn't okay. Yeah. Yeah. Great. All right. And then the last uh, theme that you've got here is about inclusive teaching in the online teaching environment. And I guess there's some advantages here in that we get to plan things in advance, but some disadvantages because those kind of things you've recommended about the personal connections and uh, are a lot harder to put together. And the tips, and again, I'll quote them, choose synchronous versus asynchronous activities thoughtfully and consider technological issues when designing for inclusion. We've mentioned a couple of those, but would you like to just expand on uh, the online teaching context for us? Absolutely. And online teaching, as we know, in this post-pandemic or I suppose intra-pandemic world that we're living in, is uh, has been such a challenge. And I feel like every month there's a new, you know, something or other that's that's happening where I need to change and adjust my practice. But what we do know is that many learners who are engaged in online learning have additional responsibilities, either at baseline or because of the pandemic. And it can preclude them from engagement at a specific time. Some people are in a different time zone. Some have childcare difficulties. And so I think the biggest thing is, as an educator, asking ourselves, is there a discrete benefit to making this learning activity synchronous? Or would it be just as valuable, for example, is this just information delivery? I would argue that most information delivery contexts are just fine asynchronous, whereas things where we need to build relationships and collaborate and solve problems should probably be more synchronous activities. What I've tried to employ is a more hybrid model where all of my information delivery lectures are asynchronous videos that you can watch on your own time. And then, for example, we'll have case studies where we can come together for a discrete hour, answer any questions, troubleshoot problems that you might have, and go through sticky points of the content. And, you know, as students, my wife is a student as well, and I'm a student, It's it's been a lot of... Uh, development of empathy, hiring, for example, babysitters and nannies to help us out with our kids, only for both of us to sit through an hour of reading through slides. And so it's been challenging, um, but also very eye-opening to understand the student experience as an educator. <laughs> yes, probably good for us all to spend some time on both sides of that student and teacher interface. Uh, it's a nice reminder. 
All right, well, the last sort of substantive point I wanted to discuss with you is about the writing, because many of the people who listen to our Harvard Macy Institute podcast are at various stages of their own scholarship and writing and disseminating ideas. Uh, and so I'm interested in the how of the publication process. And I'm a little bit aware of MedEd published. So this is a post-publication peer review, which means you can put your manuscript up there. You, there are some expert peer reviewers uh, from the publication itself. But then also people can openly critique and uh, provide a review of your paper. And the reviews get published as well. So tell me a little bit about the process of publishing yeah, this, um, in full disclosure, has been my first, you know, real publication as a, an academic person. And I have to say that the other co-authors on the paper, um, they're all senior educators at Emory in some capacity or another. They've been such great mentors. And as we sort of started talking about inclusion, um, you know, they, they all kind of said, we think that you should take the lead on this project. And I thought it was just so meta to be writing about inclusion, but working with a group of people who say, come on, Jeremy, we want to include you in, in this. And not only do we want to include you, we want you to uh, try to take charge. And the publication process was fairly streamlined, just like you would submit to any other journal. But what was nice, and now actually, I, I'm looking at the publication and realizing that some of the prior comments aren't there, but it was migrated from a different platform. We already received three comments uh, the last time that I looked. And it was really great feedback on some things that we should have focused on, uh, some things that they really appreciated. And so this post-peer review feedback, in my mind, it's just, uh, I'm always becoming, right? I'm always trying to be better. And even the idea that once you put ideas out there, that they could still be improved. The publication's not the end-all be-all. I think it's been pretty cool. So I don't know where I'll publish next, um, but uh, trying to break into the writing scene and very appreciative and fighting the imposter syndrome with the other co-authors on the paper. Yeah, that's a tribute to them as well and uh, another whole topic, but I think an important one, how people <clears throat> can collaborate uh, in the writing and in particular how we can promote those who are newer uh, to that process. And for people who are interested, we'll put the link on there, but it's www.mededpublish.org. Uh, Richard Hayes, who many may know in the medical education field, is the editor-in-chief, and it's been a very interesting initiative of the uh, AMI group. All right, so we're starting to think about wrapping up here. And so just for our listeners, a reminder, you've been listening to Jeremy Amayo talking about his paper, 12 Tips for Inclusive Teaching, uh, that he wrote with Cheryl Heron, Nathan Spell and Holly Gooding, uh, all collaborators from Emory. And I'm going to read your summary and then I'm going to ask for your final thoughts. And so this is the summary from the paper. Inclusive teaching requires a growth mindset for teachers and learners. Consider which students may be excluded by certain teaching strategies and work to use evidence-based strategies that improve learning for all. Uh, acknowledge the potential for bias, especially in that clinical learning environment. And realize that more learners are included when we afford them multiple opportunities to demonstrate progress and competency. And inclusive educators allow people to bring their authentic selves to the learning environment. Uh, that's a very nice summary. Uh, other things that you'd like to leave our listeners with as they contemplate their own inclusive teaching uh, and their participation in inclusive learning, we hope. Absolutely. So my final thoughts are that inclusion doesn't have to look a certain way. 
And as I said at the beginning, if you are listening to this with a vision that you need to overhaul everything that you're doing, that you have not arrived, that that is absolutely not the message here. I truly believe that just as I believe that every student is capable of graduating and doing amazing things, I believe that every educator is capable of teaching inclusively and in keeping with a growth mindset just one step at a time. And so I would encourage you in your next teaching endeavor to ask yourself one question. Who is being left out? And the more often we ask, the more people we include. And the more people that we include, the more stories like mine you'll hear where I learned that failure wasn't the end, that I bring value, and that I belong. Oh, that is a brilliant way to finish this uh, conversation, Jeremy. I can't thank you enough for some practical insights, some very important conceptual shifts. Uh, And I wish you well with this PhD work. I'm sure we'll be speaking again and be very keen to see uh, where that takes you and what insights that offers the rest of us. Obviously, uh, best wishes with your teaching and best wishes with your podcasting. Thank you so much for having me. I am so honored to uh, be podcasting with you and uh, so excited to what the future brings. All right. Well, uh, happy listening, uh, Harvard Macy Institute podcast listeners, and we'll look forward to talking to you next month. I'm Victoria Brazel, signing off. Mm -hmm.